I get excited when we break confidences, Dan. This, this is the stuff we look for. We live for breaking okay. confidential agreements Thanks. in this podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Human Element Karis podcast on modern marketing. And today marks several amazing things. First and foremost, we are doing our first remote pod, which is a thing of technical majesty. Thanks so much to our amazing producers and engineers for doing this. Thank you. Second, I am joined by Dan Caladine, who is the head of media futures at Care Global. Dan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's great to be on the podcast. Well, it's amazing to have you here the whole way across an ocean. What I want to do as well is note that what we're starting here today is something new is we're going to start doing a split in our pods and we will have pods that sort of cover more domestic U.S. issues and then pods that cover more global topics. And so, Dan, you are, we will send you a hat or a T-shirt or some commemorative mug to, to mark that you were the first global human element guest. How about that? That'd be brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't, don't look too forward to it. So let's start here. You've actually been doing the Cara Trends report for how long? So I think it's about 11 years. I remember doing it in 2009 and obviously doing 10 trends. Then it was 10 trends for 2010. Then we did 11 trends for 2011, 12 for 2012. 13 is an unlucky number, so we jumped back down to, to 10 again. So I think this is the 11th year that we've done it. And I think most of them still exist on SlideShare. I mean, before that, I think for a couple of years, I was doing blog posts. And, and then also I did it as a just as my final newsletter, here are 10 things I'm really interested in, looking forward to the year ahead. Since then, it's developed an awful lot and become a bit of a production number and everything. Yeah, I mean, it, it's become an actual thing. It's, it's remarkable. So I'm so excited to have you on to talk about it. How did you sort of build the process? Like, how, how did you say to yourself, all right, this is a process by which I'm going to assemble these trends together? And, you know, what does that look like throughout the year? I mean, I, I have a lot of natural curiosity. I'm very curious about the world around me. And I'm very lucky within my role at Cara Global in that I get a lot of time to read things, to file things away. And what I sort of do, well, I look out for things which are really unusual and interesting. I look out for things that might be happening in Asia, which aren't really happening in the rest of the world yet, mm. or things that some very youth brands are doing. And you think, well, actually, I could, I could see people in their 30s doing that as well. I think that that's quite good. And I'm looking for unusual uses of technology, uses that people hadn't really intended. So, for example, we were having a chat just in the office a couple of hours ago, just saying, how bizarre is it that unboxing videos have become a thing? And when the people created YouTube, they had no idea people would use right. it for that. But people just find uses. So I'm always on the lookout for sort of the weird and the quirky and the best practice. And I then try to think, well, actually, you could group these three things together. And so gradually, I really start thinking about this full-time August, September. Yep. And then I try to come up with about, you know, sort of 10 trends, which I think are pretty solid by about the start of October. And then I, I go away for a week or so and look at it when I come back. And, and then I sort of think, actually, yeah, that's pretty good. And then I, I run them past a few other people and then we start fleshing it out and turning it into 
into what is the trends report. So last question, sort of on process, because I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by it. How have you plugged into the rest of the world to make your observations? Like, do you have your own sort of mini network that you plug into to sort of vet things that are going on in different places? So I read quite extensively and I've deliberately subscribed to blogs around Asia. And, you know, you always get the American stuff, even if you live in the UK, because, you know, so many blogs like The Verge and things are very focused on what's happening in the States. But also I do talk to people around the network. So I kind of have a network of people who send me stuff. I write a weekly newsletter and one of the joys of doing that is that I get quite a lot of people replying to me saying, oh, it's interesting you mentioned this because actually in our country we're doing this. And I've actually managed to connect a few people because one week I did something on 5G and two different people, somebody from Taiwan and some people from the States both got in touch and I said, well, actually you should be talking to each other. And now they're, they're setting things up. So I basically have a sort of unofficial network of spotters who tell me things, but also I keep my ear pretty close to the ground in quite a lot of areas, you know, in quite a lot of, a lot of territories like India, looking to see what sort of things are happening there. And in fact, a lot of innovations so one of the ones that we talked about last year, which was essentially selling things through social media, that's pretty much mainstream in Asia, but it's only recently come to the West. And so a lot of the, the trends sort of come from spotting things happening in markets that might have leapfrogged, uh, you know, a sort of technology that we all, we all lived through, like desktop computing, and they just went straight to mobile. And then in that case, it makes perfect sense to buy things within the app. Whereas for us, it sort of seems a bit weird and there's not much pain in clicking from a link on Facebook on your desktop to a store and then buying something. But on mobile, that's much more painful. Yeah. So let's dive in. We would be remiss, in my opinion, if we didn't revisit 2019's report just for a second. And I know you do a little bit of a a look back every year and say, okay, what did we... I get audited, basically. (laughs) You self-audit. I self-audit. So what do we get right and what did we get maybe not so right? We only got one thing sort of completely wrong, and that was the idea of the digital detox. And while there's an awful lot you read in the press about the digital detox and how everybody's detoxing and everybody's doing this and, you know, the damage technology is doing to you, I think we got this one wrong simply because we underestimated the power of people's devices over them and and the fact that people just love using their devices. But having said that, there have been steps by people like Instagram to reduce the the addictiveness of the technology. So for example, the way over the last month or so Instagram has removed the like counts from people's posts, yeah. I think is to do with detox. It's to do with letting people, you know, giving the devices and the, the software less control over people. But so I think that's the one that we didn't get right. But I think we could almost be excused for that because we were probably being over-optimistic. But then the ones that we absolutely got right, I think, were were things like contextual commerce with selling things through Instagram, selling things through TikTok, and also experiential commerce, so live-streamed sales. So, for example, during Amazon Prime Day this year, Twitch did two days of the Twitch live streamers selling stuff. Yep. on their on their channels. And I think that was, you know, that was really good. And we called that really well. And I think in, in the report, I said, you know, we'd imagine Amazon to get start getting involved in this, which is really good. And then also another one I'd like to call out that I think we, we got spot on was the trend of design from data. So people taking the data, which is available to them from the platform. So things like Spotify, bands deciding where to tour, 
by looking at their Spotify data and even deciding the set list based on which songs are most popular in the city they're playing. So essentially people taking that data and producing products on the back of it. And in fact, one of the ones that we have as a trend this year is essentially an extension of that, which is people like Amazon, people like Deliveroo, and even people like Facebook essentially creating their own services based on things that other people have been selling on their platforms or have been using their platforms for. Which is fascinating. They're sort of doing market research almost in the platforms and then leveraging that for themselves, basically. But the point is, if you're a restaurant selling on Deliveroo, Deliveroo have far more data than you do. Yes. You know, it's not the biggest leap for them to say, well, actually, we could potentially cut out the middleman and (laughs) and do this ourselves. Which sort of is the greatest segue into this year's theme, I think, which is... Thank you. (laughs) Which is, why don't you share the theme and then I'll tell you why I think it's a, a good segue. The overarching theme is that it's the year of all-conquering ecosystems. Yes. And so that's essentially the first trend of the 10 that we talk about. But it's the trend that really affects all the other ones that lead on from it. And all-conquering with some significant predatory instincts. Yes, I think so. So essentially the, the central thesis is, or the central observation, is that if you think about five years ago, Google... Amazon, Facebook, Apple, didn't really directly compete with each other. So Google did search, Google did video through YouTube, Amazon sold things to people, Facebook was the connection between people, and Apple made hardware. And they weren't really directly competing, but now they all make hardware to a greater or lesser extent. They all are doing video, they're all doing things, doing elements of commerce, they're all getting into finance, they're all getting into healthcare. So they're all charging along, but not just charging along in a straight line, sort of shooting out into all sorts of other directions. And the analogy that I use is it's almost as if they were these sort of four independent trains running along on these tracks at high speed, but the track's not intersecting. But now it's almost like they're four bumper cars sort of in a corridor going from side to side, potentially crashing into each other. It's a great analogy and I think a great observation and one that Viscerally, everybody sort of is like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But I think the degree to which they're becoming truly competitive across a a lot of overlapping areas, I I still think a lot of people don't quite think about that or don't recognize how significant it is. And we don't really mention it, but if you think about advertising, you never used to think of Amazon as an advertising platform. And now I think it's number three. It is number three. And growing like a rocket ship. Which is totally through stealth. It's it's incredible how they've done that. I love the theme, by the way. I think it's I think it's Thank spot you. on. Share with me, if you'd like, what are some of your favorite trends or ones that you think are most significant in this year's edition? So one is the the one I was talking about earlier, the the own label one, the idea yep. that these people are taking the data that they're observing at massive scale on their platforms and just, you know, Amazon creating its own small batch gin, things like that. You know, how easily or how possible it is for them to do these things. Another really interesting one is what I think is happening with payment and money. So another analogy, if you think about when you got out of a taxi five years ago, you'd see the price, you'd get money out of your pocket, you'd pay the man, and then you'd walk off. These days you just jump out of the Uber, you know, and a few seconds later, an email arrives saying how much money you spend. And as uh, when I was saying this to a colleague, she said, 
if you even look at it at all, you know. And so it's almost like the money has been separated from the transaction. And I think within that, we're seeing the growth of quite a lot of fintech companies, which are allowing people to be more conscious of how they're actually spending money, almost gamifying their finances. And what I think we will, the point I think we'll get to, and we've already started to see announcements of it with Facebook saying they're developing a payment currency in addition to their proposed cryptocurrency. We'll get to a point where, you know, I could go anywhere in the world and I wouldn't need to worry about what the local currency is because I'd just be paying via Facebook or I'd be paying via Google or I'd be paying via Amazon or, or whatever. So I think we're sort of getting to the point where money is sort of becoming invisible as we use less cash. This to me raises a question of, you know, often we have used kind of a couple benchmarks to define what it is that a government or a political entity is, right? And one of them is Mm -hmm. control and maintenance of their own currency. When you have these huge multinational organizations that are bound or, you know, without boundary, and many of which have their own community elements to them, it begins to change sort of the definition of what a corporate organization means from a a governmental perspective, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it almost as though there's an incorporation of an entity in a Facebook or an Amazon that has Mm -hmm. governmental elements to it or has at least a political, and I don't mean political like politics, I mean like political like the organization of people element to it. Isn't that true? I think so, yeah. And I think increasingly one of the themes over the next few years is going to be when you have these companies which are larger in terms of revenue, in terms of wealth than than quite a lot of the world's countries and the world's governments, how you actually control these things and how you stop them from deciding exactly where they pay tax and where they don't pay tax and and things like that. So, yes, so I think as they develop their own financial systems, that will sort of increasingly become a problem for national governments and potentially, you know, for, for global governments as well or for global institutions. Yeah, I mean, it really raises the stakes that we've seen play out this year very publicly around failure or, you know, lack of engagement in governments to regulate some of these entities. You know, this yep. this raises the stakes immeasurably. So we're actually recording this on the, the, the 12th of December, which is the day that there's a general election in the UK, which we're all very excited by. Are you really excited or are you exhausted by it, well, Dan? Well, <laughs> I... I would love to be looking back at it in 50 years' time because I think it's absolutely fascinating. Living through it is possibly a bit more than my nerves can handle sometimes. (laughs) But obviously next year, you guys have got an election as well. Yeah. And I think whatever happens in that will have pretty far-reaching implications for these ecosystems we're talking about because one set of people is wanting to regulate them and the other set of people is is less likely to regulate them, I would say. I think you're right, although... My personal observation on this is that just one of the few issues that both sides agree on in this country is that there has to be regulation of the big platforms. What they don't agree on is what that regulation should be and how it should be conducted and what are the implications of it. But they do share in common that something has to happen. It's the something that happens that I think they differ on. Yes. Okay. So let's get back to trends. A couple other ones that sort of stick out for you. Okay. So another one, which I think is really interesting, is about how social media use is evolving. And this actually is quite relevant to what we were talking about when we were talking about the election in that 
I think as people have become much more used to social media and there are more platforms, people are becoming much more sophisticated in their usage. They know what to share completely privately. For example, in a WhatsApp messaging group, they know what to share completely publicly, for example, as a tweet. And that's quite often complaining about a service they've had from a company or something. And they also know how to share to a small group of friends. And they also know that some platforms like Snapchat and also like Instagram with stories allow them to post things which are private by default and just self-delete automatically after 24 hours. So I think as this happens, what we're seeing is a sort of a changing sort of social media use. And you have some new opportunities. For example, there are some quite influential groups within Facebook at the moment where you can't see the content unless you're a member of the group Mm -hmm. and you can't join the group unless you answer a few questions and the moderators vet you essentially. And they can kick you out if they want to as well, if you start spamming people and things. It's kind of something that Facebook, for example, has had to do because they want people to have more control over their own data and to be more conscious of what they're sharing. But I also think it has some pretty big implications for brands. So for example, the reach of organic posts is just going to continue to fall simply because by having you know, private groups, by having close friend networks and things like that, these social networks now have much more information to feed into their algorithms about which friends you really want to hear from, what sorts of news you really want to hear and, and those sorts of things. And I also think it's potentially there's going to be a new role for influencers almost being an ambassador within groups or for some brands, you know, like Peloton, if you have a really enthusiastic audience, then you can actually have, you know, 200,000 people who join this group and, you know, create 30 conversations a day and give each other, you know, high fives and hearts and wows and, and everything when they talk about their achievements on the platform. It's with the Peloton one, actually, it's really fascinating because obviously the big news about Peloton over the past couple of weeks has been the advert. Even within the Peloton group, because I I remember I I sort of infiltrated it, even within the Peloton group, the people were pretty horrified by the advert. One person just said, they should have asked, you know, they could have just asked us, what do we think of this? Within this private group of 200,000 people, and we'd have told them, just have a rethink, you know. Because in that group, you have an awful lot of people saying, I bought a Peloton nine months ago. This is my picture nine months ago. This is my picture now. That's right. I've done 200 days in a row. Yep. Not, you know, my husband gave this to me a year ago. I haven't noticeably lost any weight whatsoever, but I completely love using it. But I think it's fascinating how social media has changed because five years ago, you couldn't do things like this or people weren't doing things like this. To your point, I think the Peloton example is a really good one, right? It brings into focus the obligations, I think, that exist for brands, particularly these brands that have such passionate followings. Mm. And that's not a new thing, right? We've been doing quote unquote social listening as a a part of brand development and, you know, sort of informal research for a long time. There's a requirement for engaging these populations and making them much more a part of what the outcomes are of the brand's direction. And I'm a huge Peloton fanatic, you know, I'm at 300 mm-hmm. rides, so there's my confession. Seriously? Um, yeah. Oh, I'm very impressed. It is something that I love the product and I, I love the community. 
But it is something that I would have expected that brand to know of itself and to leverage yep. the, the power and possibility of that community to help them co-create or co-vet or think a bit about yeah, exactly. it. And I think what they did here is they missed that entirely. I think they took a much more traditional approach to the marketing development of yep. that ad. And that's where the issue is. They They didn't actually behave in the way that reflects, I think, the modernism of, of what they've built. And that's yeah. almost where the issue is, in my view. But again, it's it's a fascinating thing. And then what Ryan Reynolds did with Aviation Gin, which I'm not sure yes. whether you saw. Okay. It, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that sheer brilliance. Sheer, yeah. absolute brilliance. What it does to the industry is, you know, that is an ad done effectively outside of our industry. You know, last week the biggest ad of the year, biggest viral moment of the year in advertising took place outside of the holding company infrastructure of the traditional agency infrastructure. And that has implications too. Yes, absolutely. Okay, give me one more, Dan, lay it on me. Another one, which I think is really interesting, is about how esports and gaming are sort of becoming so central to the culture for many people. So I think traditionally... If you think about gaming and then sort of by extension esports, a lot of games have sort of been based on concepts from other cultures. So, you know, sports games and adventure games and, you know, there have obviously been games based on, on films and, and the other way around. But what I think is really interesting is how this is now starting to impact on general culture. So, for example, there was a golf tournament held about a month ago or maybe about a month and a half ago now where instead of the standard golf tournament where you start off with a set number of players, you go around once, the top X percent of those people then get to take part in the tournament. And it goes on for a long time and it's all sort of quite confusing. And it's really for, you know, for the, sort of the hardcore golf enthusiasts. What they created was essentially a four-person, all-superstar tournament, you know, Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, and they were just sort of going around as a foursome, playing each other, slightly different features and rules on each hole. So it was almost like golf reinvented as a video game format or an esports format, which I think is really interesting. And then you can see it in a few other things. So gaming is becoming very sort of important to music in terms of breaking new artists. So a game like FIFA, yeah. you know, one of the most influential things you can do if you're a record label is get your artist onto FIFA yep. because you know that kids all around the world are going to have heavy exposure to their tracks and you get comparatively obscure artists like there's a British artist called Bugsy Malone and his song appears in FIFA and then suddenly, you know, he gets global exposure. So I think that's really interesting. And then finally, what I think is, is really interesting is how gaming is essentially going offline with the you know great big installations of VR places. So things like The Void, which does things like Star Wars games. I think we've got a Jumanji game coming up. But also there are a few centers, none in the UK yet, none in Europe yet, called Sandbox VR. And essentially, you know, it's not a case of do I stay in and play a game or do I go out and watch a movie? You can go out and play a game. You and your friends can turn up at this place and, and play games. And so I think we'll see a lot more of that. And it just shows how gaming is just embedding itself into the general culture. As an implication of this, I think a lot of clients have, you know, they don't really know how to get involved with gaming, how to I engage agree. with something like esports. But if you say to them, 
it's like a sports tournament. So in the same way that you'd sponsor a, a golf tournament or you'd sponsor the Champions League or something, you know, it's often the same audience or it's, yep. it's a slightly younger version of the same audience, but they follow it with just as much passion and they spend just as much time consuming the content. And it's potentially taking eyeballs away from the sort of content that you're sponsoring, like sports events, like music festivals. So I think it's almost a way of reframing the opportunity for clients to say, you've done things like sports sponsorship for a long time. You understand how that works. But it's actually quite similar. It's nothing to be scared of. Yeah, it gives them a framework. Yeah, you can use yep. a lot of the same things in the same way. You know, I mean, it always amazes me when you see these things in newspapers saying, you know, 16-year-old kid is paid to play video games. You think, well, 16-year-old <laughs> kid is paid to play football. You know, it's the same thing. But it's interesting that we don't see them the same way, though. I think you're right. It, it, I don't walk into the office and say, oh, it's absolutely insane that Marcus Rashford is 20 years old or 21 years old and he's on 110,000 pounds a week at Manchester United. But I come in and I say, oh, there's this kid in Japan. The kid who won the Fortnite World Cup. Right, exactly, who made 8 million bucks or whatever, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I look at that and I'm like, this is insane. It feels different because there isn't really a level of athleticism involved, for example. That's correct. But, in you know, in the same way the people who set up DeepMind, the company, the AI company that Google bought, you know, the guy could beat his parents at chess at the age of four. You know, it doesn't necessarily need to involve athleticism. It just needs to involve these skills that almost no one else has. So let's do two things real quick. What sort of overarching advice do you have for brands uh, about how to work with some of your trends and, and make them more impactful in their planning cycles and the way that they're executing their work? The first thing is essentially to approach them with with some imagination and sort of think, well, this is really interesting. How could we get involved in this? We should try testing something around how people are using social media differently, or we should try testing something around how gaming and esports is developing, or see if there's any opportunities in something, and then try to work out if you were to test something like that, you know, who would the best partners be to work with? Obviously, we can help them with that. And then what sort of test you would construct, what success looks like, what failure looks like, what sort of interesting let's test in a different sort of way looks like as well. And really sort of approach it with almost like a scientific experimental mm. mindset of saying, okay, this is this is really interesting. This is something we're not doing at the moment. Let's dip a toe into the water. Let's try to see which of our brands, which of our audiences would be most appropriate to this, and then see how we could do something that might try to capitalize on this trend or this observation. And in that, I mean, that is, to some extent, the new work of the new marketing, right? It is a constant set of ongoing experiments, tests, you know, dipping your toe into various pools to see what happens. And there are still far too many clients that don't. And the thing is, the results can come back really, really quickly. Yeah. So when I first started working in digital media, you know, I went from a world of doing weekly market research where you'd ask, you know, 200 people if you've seen an advert for such and such to serving an ad campaign and seeing the results almost immediately. 
or you know if you send out an email on Mailchimp or something just refreshing the page and just seeing how many people have opened the email within the first five minutes of it arriving or something so with so many things within innovation and within digital media you can test and you can see some results pretty quickly yeah certainly in terms of that reach and, and initial response what advice and counsel do you give to client leadership or would you give to client leadership with regard to to this work so what i'd say is have a think about which things are most relevant to your clients. So, well, I've got a few meetings already booked in for January and beyond um, going to see specific clients. And so when we do that, we'll say, okay, this is a, a CPG company. Therefore, we think that the five most relevant to them would be this. Yeah. And then and then work with the client leadership team around, you know, can we tailor some of these implications to be quite specific? So to mention particular products they have or particular audiences they're going for or um, particular problems that they're facing at the moment and really just to try to engage with them and then try to find some partners. Um, and again, we can help with this that can actually help them to sort of get involved in these different areas. When you talk to clients, what are the one or two things that you hear most often from them around, you know, things that they're looking for, or things that they need or problems that they want solved? Is, is there some shared commonality to that? When I go in, I talk quite a lot about innovation and trends. And so what I get a lot is, okay, we, we hear so many trends. What are the really important ones? Or can you raise your hands and say, we said this three years ago and it didn't happen or something. Mm. And so I get an awful lot of people essentially wanting us to sense check what we do. But I, what I think is, you know, the joy of working for a company like Cara is that we're very data-based, we're very analytical, and we're not saying, oh, you know, this is really cool because somebody in Singapore has just done it. What we're saying is, this is a really interesting idea which has come out of one country. In this country, there are 50 million people doing it. It's the sort of thing that you could imagine taking off elsewhere in the world because, you know, there's a sense of fun to it or it's very sure. easy to do or something. And it's something that might take off. I remember this time last year when I was going around showing trends to people, I was basically showing an awful lot of people TikTok for the first time because TikTok <laughs> was in one of the trends last year. And now, yeah. you know, you can't get away from it. Uh, no, um, I have a 16-year-old daughter. I definitely cannot get away from TikTok. I, I can yeah. assure you of that. <laughs> I get the addictiveness of it, you know, watching random people you don't know do silly dances yep. in their dorm rooms. I, <laughs> I guess, you know, it's it's a great way to kill an hour, I suppose, if you have an hour <laughs> to kill. All right, last question, then we're going to get into the lightning round, so get excited for that, Dan. Sure. If we look five years out, give me, like, a, a biggest, boldest prediction. So I think if we look five years out, there will be several global digital currencies. I mean, arguably, there already are, mm. you know, there's already at least one with the billion people in China using Alipay, which is the payment service of Alibaba. So what I think in five years time, there'll be, you know, you'll be able to pay with Facebook, you'll be able to pay with, with Amazon, you'll be able to pay with Google, you can already pay with Apple. So I think in five years time, whether or not cryptocurrencies come in, I'll be able to travel to an awful lot of places in the world without really wondering and worrying what the currency is. Because when I buy something, I'll scan a code and it will say, this is costing you £5.27, do you want to proceed? Rather than, you know, this is $7.50 right. or something. Right. 
I imagine almost every government in the world is very resistant to that, but I still think it's going to happen because I don't think... Yeah, I don't think there's anything they can do about it. Yeah. (laughs) To some extent, it's out of the bag, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think with crypto, they can stop crypto being legal in their countries and stuff. Agreed. They can stop this. Agreed. Citizen buying it. But I don't think you can stop somebody putting their credit card details into Instagram or in the same way they can't do it with Amazon. I mean, one of the things I wonder all the time as a brand marketer, you know, basically all my professional career is brands exist because they have definition to them around expectations and the places in which Mm -hmm. brands have expertise and can play. And the more that we have, you know, again, the whole theme of this trend's work is, you know, the all-conquering ecosystem. And to some extent, that means that these brands have to travel vast horizontal distances to cover all these different areas. And by Mm -hmm. definition, that's hard for brands because at some point in time, you don't stand for anything if you stand for everything. Yes. I think that's an interesting space. You know, at what point in time does Apple, because they do devices and they do streaming and they do payments and they do, what kind of company are these? You know, what are they? And I think that's a really interesting question. Yes, you can definitely argue that a lot of people are spreading themselves too thin. And if you have, you know, Facebook video and Facebook money and Facebook health services, but then you could also say there's an awful lot of people who spend an hour a day on Facebook and there's not that many other things they spend an hour a day with or not many other people they spend an hour a day with. You know, and you can also say that you might have Facebook video and Facebook health and Facebook money and everything, but actually the one that's relevant to me is original Facebook or something and that's the one which is most relevant and it doesn't really matter to me that they have all these other things in the same way that when Virgin brand started making Virgin Cola they made Virgin Cola for a few years and people said well you know what if you see a pile of litter and there's a Virgin Cola can with it is that going to damage your perception of the brand and I think think it didn't really to be honest it's an interesting question. All right, the lightning round, Dan. We're going to do a super fast version because sure. we got we're up against it on time. So, do you have a favorite football club? I hate to tell you this, I'm relatively agnostic about football, but my favorite football club would be Cambridge United, ah. who are essentially in one of the very lower divisions. Yeah, are they League Two? I think they might be League Two. They may may have dropped out of that without me noticing, to be quite honest. For our domestic listeners, League Two is the fourth level of the English Soccer League. So their players are probably semi-professional. Yeah, probably. I love it. Cambridge United, I'm all in. We're going to go, you and I. Okay, cool. All right. Favorite social platform? Do you have one that is your go-to? Yeah, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I really like Twitter because... There's always something new, but also there's some incredibly funny people on Twitter. And (laughs) if I have five spare minutes to go and just sort of decompress from a pretty intense meeting or or something like that, I'll always turn to Twitter because there'll always be something which is, you know, crazy or nuts or just incredibly funny or... And people also play characters on Twitter. And so you get, when you follow people, you kind of think, how is so-and-so going to respond to this? And That's and right. Stuff. So you want so, to yeah. see how they, yeah, that's, I do yeah. that a lot. It's like, let's see yeah, how I'm, this person has reacted. Of, yeah. I'm very fond of Twitter. I'm with you. Is there a sort of most important musical artist or album of your youth, of your teenage years? It's not really of my teenage years, but I, I would I would sort of say I'm a, my favorite band of all time would be the Rolling Stones, but I'm quite obsessive about not wanting to actually see them live. Because they're 80? Yeah. 
I don't really want to be standing the other end of a football pitch and watching somebody on a on a giant screen. Got it. When somebody invents the time machine, probably about 2030, then I'm there. <laughs> Go back in time to to some club in 1968 or something. Yeah. So Dan, I love that you already have the schedule for when the time machine's gonna going to arrive. <laughs> that is truly ahead of Media Futures right there. That is, you thank fulfilled you. your job description. Dan, I can't thank, thank you enough. You are an absolutely delightful guest. Will you do this again? I would love to. Yeah, I've, oh. I've really enjoyed it. Fantastic. We'll talk to you again very, very soon. And everybody, please look for the Trends Report. It's going to drop that first week in January, we think. It is absolutely fantastic. And, and Dan, you've done a great job with it. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that wraps it up for another episode of The Human Element. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Give us a subscription or subscribe or give us a like. It's still free, Jason, isn't it? Still free to the end of the year. $3,000 a month next year is the uh, subscription cost. (laughs) We're going to monetize this platform. I'm kidding, obviously. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. We'll be out to you real soon. Bye-bye.